1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority in power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subject, subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians deals with a lot of great fundamental truths of the Christian faith. In fact, it's all there in chapter 15, really. We have seen thus far in chapter 15 that the two fundamental aspects of the gospel message are Christ crucified, dead, and buried. And then Christ raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. We have seen that the two demands of the gospel are, repent of your sins and have faith in Jesus Christ, what he has done for you in dying on your behalf, and the fact that he was raised from the dead, and because he was raised from the dead, he has raised you also in, in a magnificent way and will continue to do that in a coming day. Last week, we saw that Christianity without a resurrection is no biblical Christianity at all. It is paramount to the Christian faith that Jesus is risen from the dead. If he is not risen, the scripture says, you are still in your sins if he's not raised. Because there's no Savior to apply his atoning work to you if he's dead. We concluded last week with verses 20 through 22, dealing with the representative headship of Adam and Jesus. Adam being the first man, the whole human race was represented with him in the Garden of Eden. And from Adam, we have inherited a nature like Adam. So everyone that is in union with Adam, the scripture says, dies. Jesus in the scripture is said to be the last Adam or the second Adam. And everybody in union with Jesus lives. And so what we see is we approach uh, this section today and we will it's not it's too much great truths here to deal with it in one message. Uh, we'll continue with the message next week in verses 23 through verse 28. And we're faced with one of the greatest places in all of the Word of God 
dealing with the area of theology that we call eschatology, derived from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last things. And yesterday, I'm going to tell you when Jesus is coming back without giving you a date. The great errors of many throughout the years is this date setting. And, by the way, date setting, trying to be precise, is forbidden in the Scriptures. It's too bad that many don't take that to heart. But again, Matthew 24, verse 36 says, and this is Jesus speaking, He says, But of that day and of that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And you can't set a precise day. But the Bible does reveal generalities to us, and this portion of Scripture does tell us in a general way when Jesus is coming back. Now, one reason why one of the eschatological views known as dispensational premillennialism is suffering some uh, hard times, although it's hardly, you could say, it's dead because it's still the predominant view today, but it is suffering setbacks simply because just in our generation alone, we've had at least three or four people that have been very confident when Jesus is coming back, when the rapture is coming, and though there were 88 reasons why the rapture would be in 1988, 1988, it's come and gone 20-some years ago. There are those who are notorious for making their views well known, and they are still on the air touting these views, unfortunately. Books, uh, are very popular in this regard, uh, trying to tell us that it's just around the corner and things like this. And, of course, we all know last year's uh, big failures of Harold Camping's predictions. That's what happens when you try to be precise and say when he is coming back on a date. We ought to go with the Word of God. Jesus was, was true when he said, no one knows. And in his humanity, he doesn't even know. He chooses not to know of that. When the Father says it's time, he will come back. And he will come back as set forth according to our text here and other places we're going to see. You know, I'm grieved that there are millions and millions of books sold that try to tell us that uh, the imminency of his coming or uh, what is most commonly viewed But you know what? The Scripture plainly tells us that we can't predict precise dates. But it also tells us when we can generally understand. Just let the Scripture speak. You know, if they would only allow the Scripture to just guide us and and let's Quit bringing our preconceived notions to interpret the Scriptures and just let the Scripture speak to us and then seek to understand that and not impose a theological system upon the Scriptures. 
you know, you can make a, a your conclusion can be true, and yet your presuppositions be false. And so you can reason logically with false premises and your whole conclusion be skewed, though rationally derived from its premises. And there are many views today that have greatly erred in their understanding of Scripture in this point because, again, they're taking a view and forcing it upon the Word of God. And that's what we have to resist. Now, everybody is in danger of doing that. Everybody that studies the Scripture has to be very careful that, that I'm not going to impose a system upon the Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a system in the Scripture, because the Bible is one. As the Scripture says, Jesus says, I am the common thread of all the Word of God. And there is a great unity in the Scriptures. But we, don't, we understand that unity to be there, because as you look at biblical texts, that's what it teaches. And then as you faithfully deal with these texts, then a system emerges. But what we have to, uh, the difference is our system of theology is derived from the text of Scripture and not forced into it. <clears throat> so, our text today that we're going to begin with, uh, with verses 23 through 28, is surely one of the uh, great passages in all of the Word of God that teaches what we term as post-millennialism. That is the view that our denomination holds to. It is the view that our denomination expects all of its officers to hold to, because we believe that is what the Scripture does teach. We believe that's what the Westminster Confession does teach. And though we may not expect all members of the church to hold that position, because, again, what are, what are the expectations of church members? Give a credible profession of faith. But if you're going to hold an office in the church, whether it's an elder or a deacon, we do expect our officers to be more precise in their understanding of scriptures. And we must always strive for theological precision. Now, there's good ways to do that, and there are bad ways to do that in striving for theological precision. But you know what? If you're going to maintain the purity of the gospel, you have to be theologically precise. And if you're not, that's how heresies come into, into existence, because we have failed to be theologically precise. Do you really mean you've got to believe in Jesus to be raised from the dead? Now, that's a theological precision to insist that. But we saw already in 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. So there is some precision that is necessary. Now, while eschatology, in, in many regards, may not be a fundamental tenet of the faith, meaning that there are four prominent views of how Jesus is going to come back, and there are Christians who hold all those views. That doesn't mean they're all right, but it does mean 
you have, you're not doomed to eternal destruction because you uh, don't fully understand all the things concerning Christ's coming, the millennial reign, and things like that. So our salvation is not dependent upon that, but that doesn't mean that it is uh, something that we should just throw aside as being, you know, not all that important. I remember when I was a seminary student, Reformed Seminary, uh, one of the young professors at the time, a, a, a genius of a man, Greg Bonson, you've heard me talk about him. He taught a course in eschatology. I actually did not take his course in eschatology when I was there. I took other courses. <clears throat> but he said, he says, uh, man, he says, you may hear some people say, well, I don't know what the view is. I'm a pan mill. Meaning it's all going to pan out in the end anyway. <laughs> well, there's no such thing as a pan-millennialist. But he says, of all the things, don't be a pan-mill. That's treating this portion of theology as being trivial. And it's hardly trivial, as we're going to see. So, whatever you are, don't be a pan-mill. When I left seminary, I did not know what I was. But I didn't know this. I said, I haven't studied it sufficiently. But I've got to one day because I knew of its importance. And I said, I'm going to have to give greater attention to this. And therefore, I did. Now, in this regard, one of the things that um, we're going to see in this regard is that truth does matter. Truth does matter in terms of eschatology. And it does make a difference, it really does make a difference what you believe concerning these things. It does make a difference what you believe in the nature of that millennial kingdom and when it's coming. And one of the things that separates the views and the one thing that separates post-millennialism from all the rest is its victory orientation. All the other views in some shape or form do believe that the church is destined for defeat in human history. Now, some will say, well, that really doesn't make a difference uh, in the long run. And I always say I beg to differ with you that it doesn't make a difference in your perspective. Usually they say, well, the Lord expects you to be faithful in ministry despite whether you see success or not. Now, to a certain degree, that may be true. But if <clears throat> that's only because, for example, we may not see in our lifetime the fulfillment of all these promises in the Word of God, I mean, throughout history, there are a lot of people, the Scripture says, does it not in Hebrews say, that long to see the coming of the Messiah, but never, but never saw it physically, yet they saw it with the eyes of faith. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12 refers to that. There are many, uh, for example, in a, in a military campaign, there are many soldiers uh, that may fight, and they may perish in the war, and they may never see what their death uh, was ultimately the value of that that led to a victory. So, in one sense, you are faithful in your time. And we have to be faithful in our time. 
But it does make a difference, though, what I think of my efforts in the long scheme of things. It is important to understand and to believe that the church is not destined for defeat, but for victory. And if you think that you're going to fail, I'm sorry, but psychologically it, it takes its toll upon you. Especially, here's where it takes its toll upon you. When the going gets tough, that's where it'll take its toll. Because when you get persecuted, and despite all of your efforts, you say, I just don't see anything coming out of it. If your view is, according to your, your eschatological view, if the church is destined for defeat, you'll say, well, it was going to be defeat. Uh, I was going to be defeated anyway, so it's just the way it is. However, if you think uh, it's going to be victory, you realize that my efforts, though I may not see it in my lifetime, I have the confidence that my efforts, faithfully done for the cause of Christ, does make a difference in the long run. It really does make a difference. And God takes all of these things into consideration. I like to tell this story because that is so good. Gary DeMar told it first several years ago of a college in England that had these uh, massive oak beams in its uh, assembly hall. I mean, we're talking about massive oak trees. And they were 350 years old. And they had some uh, engineers come in, and the engineers inspecting the place gave them the bad news and say, some of these 350-year-old beams are really deteriorated, and you're going to need some more. Well, where are you going to get huge oak beams? Well, just a few miles from the college is a place that has a forest that had huge oak trees. And some of the trustees of the college went to this place, and some of them said, well, we were wondering when y'all would ever show up. You know what? When they built the college 350 years earlier, they went over several miles away and planted oak trees. Because they knew that one day they would need to be replaced. Now, they're going to be long dead and gone. But they, they knew they would have to be replaced. And so here were these oak trees ready to be harvested to repair. Because someone had the, the sight uh, to think ahead. It does make a difference if you believe that your efforts are going to lead to victory or if they're going to lead to defeat. It does make a difference. Now, <clears throat> though there are four views of Christ's second coming, essentially they can be broken down and classified into really two camps. Premillennialists and postmillennialists. And what these are these views derive their names with reference to the timing of the second coming with reference to the millennium. So even though there are four views, essentially with regard to the timing of the second coming, there's only two views, pre-mill or post-mill. In, in these four views, 
for example, or let's put it this way, concerning these two fundamental views, premillennial or postmillennial, if one believes that Christ's coming is before the millennium, then one is a premillennialist. The word, the prefix pre meaning before. In this view, the kingdom of God, the millennium, is after the second coming. So the, in that view, the second coming is before the millennium. So if you believe the millennium or the kingdom of God is after the second coming, then one is a premillennialist. On the other hand, if one believes that Christ's coming is after the millennium, then one is a post-millennialist, the word post meaning after. In this view, the kingdom of God has been with us since the time of Christ, and in this view, we are presently in the millennium. Again, in our denomination, one of the, of the distinctives is that we do not practice what is called uh, eschatological liberty, meaning doesn't matter what you believe. You know, some think we might be too strict in that regard. However, we don't practice, uh, if I might use a big word, soteriological liberty. It does matter if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. So we are, we make distinctions there. We make distinctions in terms of baptism. We make distinctions in everywhere uh, because we view them as important. They may not be uh, affect your eternal destiny, but that doesn't mean nonetheless they're not important. We view eschatology as being important. That's why we expect our officers to hold that view. And as I said before, we are post-millennialists. By the way, one of the things uh, and the benefits that I derived uh, in doing the book that I've been working on for so long, about that close to being there, is that the great impetus of world missions in the 17th and the 18th century undoubtedly was from the perspective of being those who held to a post-millennial view, who had a victory orientation of the gospel. And yet, these, and some of these sophisticated Englishmen, and the English like to be sophisticated, do they not? And they have their dignity, uh, like they like to uphold, and yet they had a view. These men had a view, uh, especially in England, that they would reach out to all classes of society, especially those coming to the New World. They had a great desire to reach the Indians and the, uh, the Negroes. And they did. They deliberately took the gospel because they said, and all you have to do is look at their texts of their sermons, and they are wonderful sermons uh, that teach the victory of the gospel. And, they, they, and on that basis, they said, we have to take the gospel to everybody on the face of the earth. It's what motivated John Payton to go to the cannibalistic islands in the Pacific. He was in a church in Scotland that was from this perspective. William Symington, his pastor, who uh, 
used him as a missionary in Glasgow before he went to the Pacific on his missionary journeys, has uh, wrote one of the greatest books in the history of the church on, uh, on the Messiah and his kingdom. This perspective motivated world missions. Now, it, granted, there are others that are involved in world missions that don't have that view. I'm not saying that those who don't aren't post-millennialists are not involved in missions because I know they are. The thing about it is, the difference is, I believe we're going to be victorious in this, that the Scripture demands that I go out and do this, and I, I should see victory. William Carey had that view. He labored for eight years in India without a convert. But he carried with him Jonathan Edwards's humble attempt on the necessity of prayer girding mission activity to subdue the world to the glory of Jesus because the Scripture promised great victory. He had that view when he went to India. A lot of people don't realize that. It makes a difference in the long run. Our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 22-28, when I studied it uh, previously, years ago, I had no pre- uh, preconceived views being imposed on the text. And I remember just allowing the, the grammar to dictate what it said, and I came to see what was obvious about the text. Now, I want you to take a look at verse 23 for a moment. It says, After having established the resurrection of Jesus and that he's the first fruits of those who are going to rise from the dead, but each in his own order, talking about the resurrection now, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Let's stop right there. This section, verses 23 through 28, deal with two major issues concerning the, our understanding of the end times. The first issue is the timing of the second coming. It tells us that. And then it tells us something about the nature and the character of the millennium, especially in verses 24 through 28, which we're going to get to next week. Our text affirms, first of all, what? The believer's resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits. So Paul is saying Jesus was the first one who's going to rise from the dead. Now, I mentioned last week, first fruits means more than just being the first to rise. The first fruit meant that it was a promise of a great harvest to come. Because Jesus rose from the dead means there are going to be many others who will rise from the dead. In fact, the scripture says, so numerous, they're like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore that you can't even number. You know, that's the promise of scripture. Now, people say, you just, you're trying to tell me we're going to see that kind of uh, evangelization. I'm saying, yes, I am saying that. Not me, because God says it. Christine and I just read this morning in a devotion from in Genesis, in Genesis 17, where it talks about Abram's name will be changed to Abraham. He will be the father of a multitude of nations. 
There's not even air yet, okay? He's 100 years old. His wife is 90 years old, has been barren all her life. And you're telling me, Abraham says, I'm going to be the father of a multitude of nations that are going to be so great you can't number them? you telling me that? Now, he laughed, believing that at, 100, at the age of 100, he was going to be like that. He says, my wife, 90. Of course, when God revealed that to Sarah's wife, she laughed too. And God caught her on that one because she thought that was kind of humorous too. But you know what? God made it come to pass, didn't he? And Isaac was born. And he was the promised seed. And from Abraham in Genesis 17 is the promise of his seed which is the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes that abundantly clear, that that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be so great that you can't even number them. What that means, brethren, is there are going to be vast more people in heaven in the end than there will ever be that have gone to hell. As many as have gone to hell and will go, it will pale in insignificance to the number who God is going to redeem. Because that's the promise of Scripture. Now, this, as we look at this passage in verse 23, verse 23 builds upon, of course, verse 22. Those in union with Adam die. Those in union with Jesus will be made alive, but each in his own order, it says. Now, those in union with Christ are surely going to be raised from the dead, the text says. Christ was the first one to rise, and because Jesus rose from the dead, we are going to rise. That, see, that gives us hope. And then I want, I want you to let's, let the grammar guide you here. Just look at the phraseology, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ. Now, who are they? Everybody that's believed in Jesus, right? When? At his coming. At his coming. At his coming, the dead believers rise from the dead. Now, that's what it, that's what it simply says. And why more have not allowed the scripture just to plainly tell us is only because of one wanting to force a system upon the scripture. <clears throat> These believers are going to rise from the dead. He's talking about a physical resurrection here. At his coming. Now, one of the tremendous errors of dispensational premillennialism is, is that, and you're familiar with this view, is that it purports a secret rapture of the church and then with this secret rapture, you have, according to this view, a seven-year tribulation period. 
uh, after uh, during which this Antichrist is uh, raising havoc on the earth during this seven-year period. And at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus comes back, they say, with his saints in what they call, a, well, what some have called, like uh, Larkin did, a second phase of the second coming. But you know what? You can go through all the scriptures. I never see any second phase of the second coming. It's just a second coming. And so there is a distinguishing being made between the rapture of the church and the revel, what they call the revelation of Christ. But that's imposing a view on the word of God. Where did it say? Does it say all that in verse 23? No. It says Christ will rise. Those who are Christ will rise at his coming. That's when the resurrection will happen. There's no two-phase here of believers. He just says that's when it will happen. So in this resurrection, the first phase, according to them, they want uh, to others, they want to make this distinction between and are led to multiple bodily resurrections that the Scripture really doesn't teach either. So let me ask you, is there anything in this text, verse 23, is there anything in the grammar or the wording that would indicate a first phase and a second phase of a a, uh, coming of Christ uh, uh, separated by some kind of tribulation period? Now, granted, not everything can be brought into one text because I'm going to bring you another text today as well. But it just simply states, at Christ's coming, those who are Christ's will rise from the dead. And I say, leave it like that, and you will do well. Another serious error concerning the end times is that when one believes that the second coming is before the millennial kingdom, it poses a tremendous theological problem. For one, it forces you into two bodily resurrections by necessity. Because, now, though there are in premillennialism, there are two views. You have dispensational premillennialism, which is that rapture, seven-year tribulation, and then a second phase coming. Not all premillennialists believe that. There are some who are called historic premillennialists who believe that, like this text there, is that there's only going to be one resurrection, and that's at Christ's coming. So they believe that there's only going to be one resurrection, uh, at that point, uh, at Jesus' coming. However, they still believe that the millennial kingdom is after his coming, which means they got to account for people living during this 1,000-year period of time who will die believers. Now, so, what are you forced to do at that point? You've already granted that there are some people 
that believers that are going to be raised from the dead at the rapture when Jesus comes. But since you believe the millennium is after that coming, you believe then that there are going to be people who will die as Christians who will need to be raised too. So that means you've got to have another bodily resurrection, right? By necessity. And they say, well, that's found in Revelation 20 in the great white throne judgment. We're going to take a look at that passage and see if that really teaches that or not. So, this second bodily resurrection, according to these historic premillennialists, occurs at what they call the great white throne judgment. Now, I want us to turn to Revelation 20 for a moment and take a look at that passage. And we're going to relate this. We're going to bring it back to our text in 1 Corinthians 15. But Revelation is a very important text. Revelation 20, and we're going to read verses 4. Well, now we're going to start at verse 1. And we're going to go, well, through the chapter there. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the marks upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when a thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne with him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, some tell us we have two bodily resurrections. And Revelation 20, 4 through 15 tells us. But I say, and many others say, where do you get two bodily resurrections in this text? Does it say two bodily resurrections? Never said two bodily resurrections. Now, it talks about a first resurrection, which implies, obviously, there's going to be a second resurrection. It talks about a second death. That means there was a first death, right? Now, the second death is being cast into the lake of fire if your name is not written in a book, the Lamb's Book of Life. What is this second death according to Revelation 20:14. The second death is said specifically to be the lake of fire. What do you think that is? The torments of hell. That's what Jesus was talking about. In Matthew 25, you have Jesus coming back and separating the sheep from the goats, saying to the sheep, Go into your Father's kingdom, and he says to the goats, Depart from me into that hell which has been created for the devil and his angels. That's the lake of fire that Jesus was referring to. Now, if one has experienced a first resurrection, here's the the great truth. If you have experienced the first resurrection, it says you have no fear of the second death. You have no fear of being cast into the lake of fire. That is the first resurrection. Now, those who are premillennialists argue that there is a first resurrection of the body and therefore a second resurrection of the body. But again, where in the text does it say two bodily resurrections? It doesn't. You see what happens when you force a view upon the scriptures? You, you, you make it, you have to insert words that the texts aren't there. It talks about a resurrection, but we're going to talk about two different types of resurrections in a moment. I would agree that a first resurrection implies the existence of a second resurrection. That's kind of obvious. But it doesn't need to be a bodily resurrection. In fact, Jesus taught two types of resurrections. In one text, turn with me to John chapter 5. And let's start reading at verse 24 through verse 29. Now, you've got to follow carefully what Jesus is saying. And the words that Jesus uses are very significant. Starting at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is... When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, 
and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, is coming, not here, but is coming, in which all who are in their tombs shall hear his voice, and shall come forth those who would do did the good things to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, Jesus has distinguished for us two types of resurrections here. The first one, he says, the person who believes in his word, what does he say? Has not come into judgment. And has what, what has already happened to this person who's believed in him? Has passed out of death into life. Now, what does that sound like to you? A resurrection, isn't it? And we're going to see it's even going to be more clear as we go on in some other scriptures. Has passed. The grammar means something has happened in the past, but whose effect continues to the present. It's called the perfect tense. He says, the person who believes in me has already passed out of death into eternal life. Interesting. Is this not what Revelation 20, verse 6 says? The one who experiences the first resurrection has nothing to fear in the second death, which is the lake of fire. Now, does he? You see how this passage fits very well with Revelation 26. Jesus said that an hour is coming, and now is. Now is. Right now, that's what now is means, right? Right now. Everybody who, it says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who live, who hear, will live. Those who hear his voice will live. He is talking about a resurrection, but it's a spiritual resurrection, right? It's a resurrection where you hear the voice of Jesus and you come to Jesus. And when you hear his voice and you come to Jesus, everything changes. And just like Revelation 20, verse 6 says, you have nothing to fear of the second death. You don't have, a, if you believe in Jesus, you're a Christian, right? And the Christian has nothing to fear of the lake of fire because you love Jesus. But you have been raised out of death into life. What does the scripture say that we are before we are Christians? Dead in our trespasses and sins. We'll look at those verses in a moment that, that bring this out. Then Jesus said, verse 28, you've got to see the difference in verse 28 from the previous verses. Because in verse 28 it says, an hour is coming. He didn't say now is. It says, it is coming when those in their tombs. Now, he didn't use the word tombs earlier because he wasn't talking about a physical resurrection. He was talking about a spiritual resurrection. 
But now he's talking about a physical resurrection. Those who are in their tombs will hear, and, and, and everybody will hear. You know, on that great day when Jesus comes back, everybody that's ever lived on planet Earth will be raised from the dead, physically. Everybody, without exception. Now, Jesus says, some are going to be raised to a resurrection of life. Those others will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. Daniel 12 talks about a general resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. But it happens at the same time. See, there's nothing complicated. We don't need to complicate eschatology. Just let the scripture guide us. And it's not that complicated, really. There's a general resurrection when Jesus comes. Everybody be raised. And then, just like Revelation 20 says, some will be judged from the book of life. Everybody will be judged from this book. And if your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, you're going to be in the lake of fire. It's not complicated. So the Bible does refer to two resurrections. But those of a premillennial persuasion are wrong when they say there are two bodily resurrections. No, there is only one bodily resurrection. And you know how we can, I can help my brother who believes in a, a millennium after the, the, the second coming say, let me help you. Just take that millennium and just go zip out here. And then you ain't going to have any more troubles. There's going to be a lot of passages that will make sense. If you just take that millennium and just flip it over before the second coming, and you're going to see that's how the scripture presents it. If you do that, you're not forced to have two bodily resurrections now, are you? If you have a millennium before the second coming, you don't have to have two bodily resurrections. You still can only have one. And that's what the testimony of Scripture is. One bodily resurrection. But the first resurrection is a spiritual one. Now, would you not grant it that we can call it a first because you are spiritually born again before you are physically raised from the dead, right? That makes it a first resurrection. <clears throat> Now, turn back. We're, going, we're not through with Revelation 20, but in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, before I go off in some other passages, I want us to see an important statement here that's made in verse 24, though the bulk of verse 24 I'll get to next week. Now, as you know, Bible numeration is a later development <laughs> to make it easier to read. But this is all one basically long sentence. So I'm going to read verse 23 and the first part of 24 together. All right? But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are at Christ, at his coming, then comes the end. I'm going to stop right there. Then comes the end. When does the end come? At his coming. Then comes the end. 
at his coming. That's not complicated, is it? It really isn't complicated. The uh, <clears throat> Now, the verse Revelation 20, 4 and following, uh, verses 4 and following, uh, helps us to understand why there is only one body resurrection. But before we turn back to Revelation 20, I want to emphasize again what the text says in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection of believers at his coming, then comes the end. Right there. Nothing afterwards. I'll deal with that in a moment. Let's turn back to Revelation 20. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 a little bit more carefully. Now, what is verse 4 through 6? It brings out three very important things. He says in verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. He's talking about saints having thrones they're sitting on. And he says these saints have been, some of these saints have been persecuted. Now, some people have said, well, you who believe in a victory orientation of, uh, of eschatology, are you telling me, what about all those who have been martyred for the faith? I go, what about them? No one has ever said that there's not going to be the persecution of the church because the Bible says that. But you know, one of the early, what they call church fathers, Tertullian, said this. You lived in around either two or 300 A.D. Right after the tale of the Roman persecutions of the church. Tertullian's famous line was, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As, as, as much as Rome tried to wipe out the Christian church off the face of the earth, literally, they failed. They failed. They couldn't do it. No one has been able to do it. And why are they able to do it? Because God promised Abraham, your seed will fill the earth as the waters cover the, the, the seas. It's going to be as numerous as the stars. They can't stop us. They can't stop the church because you can't stop Jesus we're going to see. And I don't care how often you persecute the church. Jesus said, Paul says, Yea, all those who seek to live God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But you see, I can still be victorious and yet be persecuted. The church has moved on since the days that Rome tried to wipe us out. When the uh, king of England tried to wipe out the covenanters to no avail, the church still moves on with victory. So, the saints are going to be sitting on thrones. What else does it say? It says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, these who are sitting on thrones are reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, first of all, the first resurrection encompasses those who are sitting on thrones. And it encompasses, obviously, those who have experienced um, the first resurrection or those who are reigning with him for a thousand years have experienced the first resurrection. We can glean that from the text. 
Look at verse 6, though. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection, over which the second death is no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Not only do these saints are sitting on thrones reigning with Jesus, these saints who have no fear of the second death, these saints are also called priests unto God and will reign with Jesus for a thousand years as priests. Now, we're going to take a look. When did we become priests? That's really important. I want us to take a look at some passages that will substantiate the notion that the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. I want us to take a look at three texts here. First, turn with me to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 12 and 13. Now, we've looked at that passage as a great passage on baptism, showing the continuity of the covenants on baptism. But it says more than, even than that. Look what it says. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in your trans- transgressions and the uncircumcision of your f- flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. When you believed in Jesus, what does the text say? You were raised up with Jesus through faith. Not, is that not what Jesus said in John 5? Those who hear me and believe in me, have already passed out of death into life? Yeah. This is a resurrection from the dead. Notice 13, it says, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions. But now you made alive. This is a spiritual resurrection. That, without which, if you don't have this resurrection, you're not going to be having a physical resurrection that you will like. If you don't have this spiritual resurrection, turn with me to Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. You know what? I've got to read verses 1 through 3 because that's what makes it so powerful. Verse 4. So let's just start at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and what? Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like sitting on a throne? Where is Jesus sitting right now? On a throne, right? And we have already been raised up and are spiritually sitting 
on that throne with Jesus. Right now. That's what it says. That's what our text says. We were raised up with him and were seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, there's going to be, there's going to be with him physically, but he's talking about, he's talking about being delivered out of your transgressions and sins through faith in Jesus, having a resurrection of being raised up and seated with Jesus right now. Remember, Revelation 20, verse 4 says, During that millennium, the saints are sitting on thrones and judging. Sounds like the saints are presently reigning with Jesus on thrones right now. Meaning, meaning the saints are right now exercising spiritual authority. Right now. I'll get into it more next week. But have I not told you already, what does Jesus call his preachers? His little ones. And what is the worst sin that you can ever commit? Not believe the words of one of his little ones who say, come to Jesus. Remember when Jesus sent them out, it said said they came back rejoicing, saying, the demons are subject even to us. The demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus. And then Jesus says, you ought to be more happy the fact that your name is written in the, in the book of life. And you know what Jesus responded to the uh, successful mission activity of his disciples? Here's what he said in Luke. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Through what? The preaching of his little ones. You see, the saints are reigning with Jesus because they're seated with Jesus, figuratively speaking, spiritually seated with him, and are exercising authority. There's, a, <clears throat> there's another, when we read Revelation 20, verse 6, remember it said this, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, here's the key. When did the saints become priests of God and of Christ? That's a good question, right? Well, it says during a thousand years. Well, we're trying to decide biblically when is that millennium. Is it before or after the second coming? Well, when did Christians become priests unto God? Turn to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now keep in mind, well, let me back up to verse 4. We've got to understand the context of Revelation. Those who have been to the family conference several years back, you all know all about that. What were the Revelation written to? The seven churches in Asia Minor. Alright? To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, verse 4, from whom... Him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. 
To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Now John is writing to the seven churches and he says, You have been redeemed by Jesus. And in your redemption by Jesus, he says, He has made you a kingdom of priests. The saints have been already made a kingdom of priests unto God. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 4 through 10. Same thought taught here. And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy what? Priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe... But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, meaning you who believe, you are a chosen race, a royal what? A royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, and you have not, re- you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When did the people become a holy priesthood? when they were redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, when they believed in the choice cornerstone. That's when they became a holy priesthood. And they offer spiritual sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices do we offer? Hebrews says our sacrifices are our prayers that have been brought up. And Revelation says it pictures the throne of God with a, a bowl of incense of the prayers of the saints. And in that passage in Revelation 5, it talks about the prayers of the saints and those who were priests unto God. Brethren, right here gathered today, right now, is a a holy, royal priesthood seated right here, right now. You are that priesthood. You are that part of that holy nation. And what are you called to do? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. You know you were saved by grace, don't you? You know you didn't deserve it. Then tell people. Tell everybody. The wonderful news. Jesus is your Savior. Everyone. You are redeemed. You are that royal priesthood. Did not Paul say he wanted their prayers when he went on in the mission fields? And he says... You agonize with me in your prayers for me. We are fighting the fight right now. We're judging on the throne with Jesus. We are judging the nations. 
whenever that gospel goes out, judgment is made. Right? Because Jesus says, everything's going to change. Whenever someone preaches the gospel, it is the moment of decision. Either believe them or not. And if you don't believe them, you're running a great risk. But if you do believe them, hallelujah, you've been raised from the dead and seated with him, along with the rest of us. You're you're like the rest of the holy priesthood. You're offering spiritual sacrifices, and you are exercising authority over the earth. If it wasn't conclusive already, let me give you an Old Testament passage. Turn with me to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, look at verse 6. Well, actually, I'm going to need to read the first five verses so you understand the significance of it. The Spirit, Verse 1 of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations, and strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Brethren, Jesus was in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he opened the scroll of Isaiah, read this passage, closed it up, and says, Today, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Messiah who has dawned upon human history. I have come to set the captives free. Sadly, many of those in Nazareth, they wanted to throw him off a cliff instead. And he escaped because it was not his time. Brother Jesus said that a day was coming when he would proclaim liberty to the captives, and he did. And he is still proclaiming liberty to the captives through his kingdom of priests, which are you. The the answer, the church became the kingdom of priests. And when did they reign on earth? When they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Well, brethren, that sort of makes it kind of obvious when the millennium is, isn't it? See, by looking at this, you already can answer the question, when is the millennium? Right now. Obviously. Because that's when we've been redeemed. That's when we are priests. Because it says we will be priests for him and reign with him for a thousand years. That demands we are in the millennium. And therefore, it's before his second coming. You know, our text tells us, our text in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the saints will be raised up when at his coming. 
You know, sometimes I have to correct some of my zealous Reformed brethren, younger Reformed brethren, because they haven't studied that much yet. Well, you know, we don't believe in a rapture. I've been in meetings saying, wait a minute, I believe in a rapture. What do you mean you don't believe in a rapture? You better believe in a rapture. You, you just don't. I, I understand where you're coming from. You just don't believe all the other stuff surrounding it. But the rapture simply means the catching up of the saints. That's what the word rapture. Actually, the word rapture is the Latin, rapturo, for the, translating the word catching up. But turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. Beginning at verse 13 through verse 18. But we do want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord... Notice that. Until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and, will, and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord Therefore, comfort, comfort with one another with these words. You sort of get the idea that it's all over right then, right? Then we'll be with the Lord forever. The resurrection. Well, what did our text in 1 Corinthians 15 say? The saints are raised at His coming, then comes the end. You know, the resurrection of all the dead occur at Christ's second coming. The resurrection of the dead occurs at the last day. A couple passages. Take a look at John 6. Look at verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up when? On the last day. For this is the will of my Father, and everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now, when I had the eschatology module for seminary students, I said, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you one exam question right now. It's the toughest of all. Y'all prepared? How many days are after the last day? You may think, that's a stupid question. You really think it's stupid? Well, there's an awful lot of people who think there's a lot coming after the last day, like a thousand years. How can there be a thousand years more after the last day when Jesus said the last day is his day of resurrection? See, if this were Jesus' coming, if you have this millennium after the coming, you get all these problems. 
Then you got you got a thousand more. If it's if a thousand days are taken literally, you got another thousand three hundred sixty some days after that. Well, that sort of makes meets the meaning of last day, doesn't it? But if you just move it over here, the resurrection is the last day. Then comes the end, like First Corinthians fifteen. Well, it makes sense then. Well, here's another problem. If you got some last days over here, have you ever thought about the problem with believers who are raised at Jesus' coming, which some say they are, and yet you've got this long period of time of which, depending on your view, whether it's a Jewish kingdom or whatever, people being converted here, it means you've got mortal and immortal people living at the same time, right? Because when was the church raptured? According to all the views right here at the second coming. And if you and I have already been raptured, and we're living with these mortals, and we're immortals, and then some believe we're at the end of this period then the uh, Satan is going to mount this assault upon the Jerusalem, the camp of the saints. Let me ask you a question. If you are immortal, what harm can someone do to you? Unless they've got some kind of spiritual kryptonite. Seriously. If you're immortal, you have nothing to fear. And mortals and immortals running around together? Where in the Bible does it say that? Nowhere. Nowhere. But I have read those who hold that position, and it's quite fanciful how they have to try to explain mortals and immortals. They say, well, sort of, you're up here in the Jerusalem above, hanging above the earth, and you're really not mixing with them. Where is it taught that? Nowhere. You see what happens when you have a system you impose on the Scripture? You have to come up with all kinds of fanciful views. Just let the Bible speak for itself. Jesus, the first fruits, then those who are His at His coming, then comes the end. But then next week He will tell us. He will tell us what is going on in this millennium period leading up to the end. And it's exciting. It's exciting. And again, for two centuries, this view of post-millennialism, which I've just presented to you in part, prompted world missions. Sent them out from England with a view. We're going to claim the earth for the glory of God. The Puritans came to Massachusetts to set up a city on a hill that would be an inspiration for the entire world. And for a generation, it was an incredible thing. But they lost it in three generations. But they had a view of this nature. One of the great preachers in Virginia in the 1700s was Samuel Davies. And I did not know just how great Samuel Davies was until I read one of his sermons preparing for the book that I'm doing. I was blown away with this sermon that he preached in 1754 at the outset of the French and Indian War. 
It is the most, everything that I've said to you, and he gave in one sermon about a hundred some verses. And I said, they ought to have made that into a book. This was a sermon on the encouraging the colonists to fight the British at the outset of the French and Indian War. It's the most encouraging, God-magnifying view of victory of the gospel that you will ever read. That's why I have long excerpts in the book of that sermon, because it's, I just couldn't stop. I said, I've got to cut this off somewhere. No, I can't stop. It's too good. So I just gave you about four pages of the sermon. It's fabulous. It's what motivated people. And when Edwards got cast out from Northampton, you know where he went? He went off and ministered to the Indians. And it was dangerous because the Indians were attacking settlements. It was not an easy thing to do. He went and ministered to the Indians because he says everybody needs to hear the gospel. Because the word of God promised victory. It promised victory. But they got to hear Jesus first. Brethren, it changes everything if you just believe the Word of God. Let's pray.